Let's pray before we begin tonight. Father, we do thank you that you're leading us on. Father, there's no such thing as just standing still or marking time. Father, because they are tantamount to retreat as far as the work of God is concerned. But Father, we thank you that whenever there is a plateau in our fellowship life, it's always for the foundations that have been established to really settle that they might be strong. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, because you are quickening us. And Father, there is going to be a major step forward. And we just thank you, Lord, Father, so much for all your grace in leading us. Father, we do thank you. You're not in a hurry. Do forgive us that we are in a hurry so often, Lord. But you're not. Because, Father, you know what the master plan is. You know it from beginning to end. And so it's, you can look and you know the way that things are proceeding. Father, do forgive us, Lord, if at times we lack the patience which is necessary in your work. Father, I would pray indeed for our whole fellowship here, Lord. Father, that indeed, Lord, we should see a deepening. Father, that we should see a new expansion and a new life, Lord. Father, breaking out in the midst of the, the fellowship. Father, that indeed, Father, we should understand that you are going to lead us into deeper water than we've ever been before. Father, we thank you there's so much more. Father, we've only just been playing with the pebbles, but there's so much more. And Father, I just ask in Jesus' name that even through the study tonight, Father, the base should be laid for further expansion as far as the work of God in this place is concerned. Therefore, Father, as we come to consider leadership, I ask you to just bless our deliberations that, Father, we should have clarity in our spirits, and that, Father, we should receive revelation upon revelation from you. In Jesus' name I ask it, Lord. Amen. <coughs> Amen. We've been looking at authority and our response to authority, and tonight, before we leave the subject, I have to consider the whole topic of leadership. Now, in our fellowship, we have not only eight elders, but we have also about 30 appointed leaders who work within the fellowship. And what we have to do when we're looking at leadership is to see what our justification is biblically for having leaders within a fellowship. And as soon as we start doing that, we come across a certain problem. And the problem isn't a big problem for some Christians, but it's a very big one for Bible-believing Christians like ourselves. And the problem is this. We have eight elders and 30 leaders, but when you look in the book of Acts, and when you have a look at the epistles of Paul, you don't find leaders mentioned at all. You have elders, you have much detail about elders, and you have, as we've seen, the qualities or qualifications of elders listed, but the little word leader is not mentioned at all in those passages where we would expect to find it. And so we have to ask this question, we are a group of believers who, who say that we believe the Word of God and that we use it as the sole authority for our faith, and yet here we are doing something that actually isn't found in those passages that deal with church life. And so we have to try and give an explanation for what we have done. Now, the first thing I want to say, and let me underline this, one of the basic tenets of our fellowship is that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is actually inspired, that it is God-breathed, that it is infallible, and that, more important, I think, 
for me to emphasize this, it is not only infallible, it is inerrant in the original manuscripts. In other words, there is no error whatsoever in the original manuscripts of this book that we call the Holy Bible. And because we believe that, we believe that this is the only authority on which to base our life and our faith. Now, some Christians don't hold to that absolutely, but we as a group do hold to that. Therefore, when you read the letters of Paul, you are not reading Paul's opinions. You are reading what God breathed into this man, Paul, when he was writing at his desk. And therefore, though he penned it, and you can see much of his character coming through, it's the Holy Spirit who actually gave him the words and inspired him to write these particular words. And this book is not the work of man. It is, these words contained in this book are the very words of God. Now, having stated that, I have to then say something that, of course, you all know, although you may not have heard anyone express this before. And that is that while the Bible is very comprehensive indeed, there are situations which are not exactly covered in the co between the covers of this book we call the Bible. There are situations we come across as, as Christians in our present society. There are situations that we as fellowships come across that actually the Bible gives no exact prescription for, no exact remedy for. And therefore, we are faced often with a problem. For example, nowhere in the Bible, let me give a few examples to demonstrate this, nowhere in the Bible is abortion exactly and specifically mentioned. Have you ever realized that? The reason it isn't is because the Jews never, ever, ever would have considered actually terminating the life of a fetus. It wouldn't even enter their heads. And indeed, not just the Jews, there were hardly any people in the ancient world who considered abortion as an option at all. In fact, the Assyrians, who were a very, very cruel race indeed, they thought it was such an abhorrent thing that they said if ever a woman found she was pregnant and she tried to stop the life of that child, she was to be put to death by being placed on a stake. That is, to be thrown on top of a stake so that it would pierce her right the way through. And she was to be left there until she died. A very, very cruel death indeed. So abhorrent was it. And therefore the Bible doesn't deal with it. In the New Testament it's not dealt with exactly. You do have a situation where two men are fighting and accidentally a pregnant woman gets hurt in the fray. But you see, that's not deliberate abortion. That is an accident that has occurred. But actually, there's nowhere in the Bible that says in the case of a woman wanting to destroy her fetus, this is what you are to do. That's not found anywhere in the law or any other part of Scripture. Similarly, suicide is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. That's very interesting. Smoking isn't mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Euthanasia is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. The Jews would no more kill one of their old people than they would a fetus in the womb. They wouldn't dream of doing it. They revered the elderly in their midst. So there's absolutely no sort of uh, prescription for that type of situation. It just wouldn't have occurred. One of the biggest holes that I find in the Bible is the whole question of mental Ill illness. Oh, I wish that there were a whole chapter dealing with ment mental illness. Wouldn't it be wonderful, you know, to have Nehemiah chapter 5 dealing with how to deal with schizophrenics? Wouldn't that be wonderful? 
but it's not found in Scripture. And again, the reason is that any person that suffered with mental illness was put outside the city wall. So that the churches who, well, who really thrived within the cities, they never met mentally ill people. They were excluded from the city. The watchman on the gate kept them outside. But unfortunately, in our day and age, a fellowship only has to be in existence a few months, and you get an odd schizophrenic or two coming along and seeking ministry. And so it becomes very difficult, and I could name all sorts of others. On my divorce tape, by the way, I deal with as many cases in divorce as possible. But you know, even then, I only cover 95% of the cases as they exist. There's always the 5% who listen to the tape four or five times, and still they can't quite understand what God's saying about them. And so I get these letters, you know, from these various people saying, well, Roger, I've heard your divorce tape, but I still don't know where I stand. And there, I know that the Bible hasn't said anything, so I have to then do what I have to do with all the other cases. I have to go to the Bible for what are the principles as they're outlined. Wherever the Bible doesn't deal exactly with a case, you don't worry because the Bible gives you the principles so that you know what to think about that case. For example, over suicide. The Bible's quite clear. It's God and God alone who gives life. And life is the property of God. Therefore, you have no right to take your own life. It's not yours to take. And if any person does, they are guilty of the sin of stealing. They have broken that commandment which says, Thou shalt not steal. They've stolen life from God. Well, there's a principle that you can apply on these, these issues. And unfortunately, our fellowships are faced today with a situation where we have to use principles again in these days. And the main difference between the early church and now, indeed the main difference between the church of just 150 years ago and now, is one of transport. And you may not have heard this expressed before, but let me express it to you now. And as soon as I've said it, you'll understand what I'm driving at. The difference, <laughs> if you'll forgive the pun there, the difference between us and them is this, that we have very rapid means of communication. Well, relatively rapid. Telephone is instant. Letters take a few days longer. Um, as far as transport itself is concerned, you have buses, you have cars, you have trains, in certain cases you have aeroplanes. In London, they have the tube system. In the early church, they didn't have anything like that. The only form of transport that they had in the early church was they had foot, and that was the usual form of transport, or Shanks' pony, as we might call it, and they had asses. It's only the kings who had fast horses, but if you were fairly well off, you had an ass, or perhaps very well off, two asses. But in those days, you also had ten children, and so that didn't help awfully much. And so you had a difference, and you have a difference, between today and the early church. By the way, just 150 years ago, people actually more or less dwelt in the town where they were born. They might have moved for the sake of employment once or twice, but certainly no more than that. But today, we don't live in a society like that. We live in a society where we have free access to communication and where people will think nothing of dashing off for 30 miles just to do their shopping. You know, if it's a big shop, you might go to Brighton, you might go to Portsmouth, or wherever. And so there's a fundamental difference as far as transport is concerned. And this, unfortunately, means there is a difference in the way our fellowships are organized and the very character of our fellowships. 
To show you exactly what I mean, let me just take you back to the early church. And let's consider a family where you have a husband and a wife, and you have, say, eight children. Now, they're Christians, they're born again, and they want to go and worship somewhere. Now, can you see, they can't all hop in the car and drive off to their place of worship. They need, needed a place of worship that they could get to very easily by foot. And they might have, say, a time limit on their journey. They might, say, uh, discuss it with one another and might say, well, the children can just about stand a three-quarter of an hour walk, but no more. Half an hour, three-quarters of an hour, but no more. And that would probably mean, if that was the limit, that if a church was at this particular position, you would have a radius right the way round it of about three miles, say, perhaps going up to five miles, and all of the congregation of that church would come from within that three-mile circle on either side. And that would probably take the people who lived on the perimeter an hour to an hour, sorry, half an hour to three-quarters of an hour to actually get in to the service. And so they would consider, yes, we can actually worship at that particular place. Incidentally, when I was first saved, I had to make a similar choice. Not many of us had cars. You know, we were quite poor students, especially the Christians for some reason or other. And we used to have a university on one side of the town, and the Baptist church we wanted to go to was on the other side of the town. Now, it used to take us 50 minutes to walk to that particular place. And there was a sort of migration, because all the students went to this Baptist church. It was the done thing. If you were born again, that's the church you went to. And at 10 o'clock in the morning, suddenly a migration used to occur from all of the halls of residence. And uh, students aren't noted for getting up particularly early, but on Sunday morning, we all made the effort. And out we got, quarter to 10, rapid shave, and suddenly we'd all appear like rabbits coming out of the burrows, and we'd start this tramping through the streets of the town. And along we went, and we used to think 50 minutes is okay. And we used to arrive either 5 to 11 or dead on 11. You were never late, because, of course, if you were late and the service had begun, the only empty seats were right at the front. And you used to have to tramp right the way down and fill up the front seats. It was very embarrassing. But we used to say, well, 50 minutes is just about fine, and we are prepared to go to this church because it takes us 50 minutes. After the service, if we left by half past 12, then we could just catch the last dinners or lunches as they were being served. But if the journey had been an hour or an hour and ten minutes, we wouldn't have gone to that church. We would have swapped to another church. So we had to make a similar decision to the decision that people in the early church had to make. And so, say it was half an hour, three quarters of an hour, can you see that the, the area from which a fellowship gathered its people would have been really quite small. So they had a small locality a small locality. I tend to call the area from which you gather people the hinterland, H-I-N-T-E-R-L-A-N-D. That's my geography training coming out. The hinterland is where you collect the people from. All right, now that's the early church, but now take the same reasoning up to our present day, and what do you find? Again, people have to make a decision of how long they are prepared to travel before they get to church. And let's say the same applies. Well, I'm prepared to travel for half an hour to three-quarters of an hour to actually get to church. Most people today with their cars are not prepared to travel for that amount of time, but some are. 
Well, on the same reckoning, can you see, you don't just have a little hinterland of three miles radius. In most cars, though not all, if you travel for half an hour to three quarters of an hour, you actually can re get about 30, perhaps even 35, or something like that, miles distance traveled. So now you don't just have this, you have a very large area, which is now your hinterland. And, for example, we have people who travel all the way from Southampton to come to our Sunday morning meeting. And they feel God's made them part of this fellowship. And they are prepared to jump in their little car, whatever it is, and they buzz along a good road, and they arrive here, and they think that the time traveling has been worth it to get here. I travel into the Chichester meeting, when we have a joint meeting, I would travel, say, seven miles to come here, but I would be prepared to travel more than that. So do you see, the main difference between the early church and now is this. The early church had a limited locality. We've got a vast locality. And so we have problems that the early church didn't have. And again, because of these problems, we have to start looking at principles in order to find out what we are to do. You see the point that I've now reached? It's a very important uh, point. And so we find this, that many fellowships today either have very large numbers or they have a certain number who are very geographically spread or they have both, large numbers but geographically spread. In our own fellowship here, we have two main centers of population and then we have villages dotted around the place and then we have people on the way to Portsmouth and one couple coming in from Southampton. Now that's the problem that we face. And so what we have to do is to ask the Lord, how are we going to deal with this new situation that we find? Now fortunately for us, the Holy Spirit is here to guide. In the Old Testament, I could... Well, let me quote a few examples. In the Old Testament, they also had to do this. They had to actually apply principles to see what they were to do in certain instances. If you take the question of the priesthood, for example, that's quite a good example to take. In the law, God said that the descendants of Aaron were to be the priests. And he said the four sons of Aaron were actually going to be the people from whom the priesthood came. And the priests were to do this, and here's their ministry, here are their qualifications, and so on. By David's day, however, the population of Israel had grown so vast that he had to actually come along and reorganize the priesthood. You can re read it for yourself in 1 Chronicles 24. But he had to reorganize the priesthood. How did he do it? Well, no one else had ever done this before. He did it by applying principles... And he actually divided the priesthood up into 24 sections. And that was the way that he did it. But you see there, there was no exact prescription, but he applied the principles he knew, and that's the answer that he came to. A few hundred years later, when the children of Israel returned from exile, again, Nehemiah had the problem, how do we organize this priesthood? It's changed. How do we organize it? And he, in the book of Nehemiah, he decides how to organize it. That is taking principles and applying it to your particular situation. A good example in the New Testament, which we'll be dealing with next time when I talk about deacons, is what the uh, people did in Acts chapter 6. There, the apostles found that their ministry of prayer and their ministry in the Word was being upset because they were having to spend all their time doing practical things. 
Now, no one had had that problem before in the Bible. And so there, they said, well, look out for yourself, seven men, and appoint them, and these became the deacons. Do you see, they had the principles, and so they found what God wanted. They were able to apply the principles to their particular situation. And so, what we've had to do in our fellowship, as the fellowship has expanded, is we've had to take principles from the Word of God and seek the Lord as to how we should develop the fellowship so that we actually maintain this closeness of fellowship with one another. I want to take us to the, the second book in the Bible, to the book of Exodus. And there I want to just show a situation that Moses was faced with. And this in many ways is like the situation we have in our fellowship groups today. You remember that two million believers had come out of, of Egypt. They'd crossed over the Red Sea. They were now on the right side of the Red Sea. And it was dear old Moses who was left with the problem of dealing with this two million people. The great headache it was. Now, pastorally, he had no problem. Because the two million people were already divided up into tribes and into families. So as far as the pastoral care of two million people were concerned, Moses was laughing. It was easy. The heads of the families looked after the immediate family. The heads of the tribes looked after the families within his tribe. There was no problem at all. And if any person fell sick in a particular family, the rest of the family gathered round and looked after them. So pastorally, he didn't have a problem. His problem came with authority. And his difficulty was that they were always arguing with one another and always having bitter upsets, personality clashes, and goodness knows what else, and they wanted someone to sort it out. Now, the families couldn't do it because they would support their own lot. And so you'd get one family saying, well, I think she's quite justified. And then the other family saying, well, I think ours is quite justified as well. And that didn't help it. And so what they had to do was to find someone to sort out their situation. Well, who would you go to? Well, there was one man who had experience in God, who had experience in life, and who had authority. And so all the two million people here said, there's only one person I'm going to, and that's Moses. So dear old Moses had the appalling task of trying to sort out the difficulties that were experienced among this two million group of people. And here, he's quite happy to knuckle under. Fortunately, he has a very wise Midianite father-in-law, not even a Jew, who comes along and says, now listen here, Moses, won't do, old chap. And it was the word of the Lord. He doesn't say, well, it says in Genesis chapter 43 that you ought to do this, because they'd never faced a situation like this before. But he comes along and he talks from the principles that he understands in his own heart. So let's read from verse... 13, and it came, this is Exodus 18, verse 13. Exodus 18 and verse 13. <clears throat> and let's just have a look at this. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood by Moses from the morning, that's six o'clock in the morning, unto the evening, right the way through. And all Moses did was sit on the chair and he said, right, next. And the next couple come in. They say, she's so-and-so. He's done this wrong and I'm fed up with him. 
And out will come all this complaint. And Moses had to sit there, you know, obviously being plied with cups of coffee from his poor, <laughs> poor family. And he sat there and he said, well, I think the word of the Lord is that you should do so-and-so. Okay, off you go. And they went off right next. And in came the next lot. And there was the queue stretching out into the desert. And Moses was sitting from morning right through the noon, right until night time, just judging the people all the time. Okay, verse 14. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, what is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning until even? Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And I think in, in there you have quite an enthusiastic man. He likes what's going on. And can I say, I found an odd thing when I was really busy and everyone was coming to me. In the early days of this uh, fellowship, of course, I used to get all the problems at my door. And it's quite flattering in a funny sort of way. And it, it, it was an odd thing that although I was very tired, it was a marvellous thing to be able to say to people, oh, I'm just exhausted. I've had people all day. Just all day, and they're still coming. I was up with someone till 2 o'clock, and then the phone went at 8 o'clock the next morning. And they used to think, oh, the poor chap. But in my heart, I thought it was quite good, really. It was nice. It made me sort of feel needed and wanted, and, and it was wonderful. And yet, as time went on, I was taking a pretty heavy toll from this. And notice what it says here. It does not say that is good. Do you know, on, at, outwardly, it looks very good. Oh yes, all the elders, they're absolutely overwhelmed, you know. They can hardly manage. They're so filled with people coming to them for ministry. Oh, it's just exhausting. And it looks good. It looks really good. Oh, we've got such a team of, of ministers in our place. I'll tell you. They're working morning, noon and night, you know. Yes, they never stop, even for lunch. It's amazing how hard they work. And you'd think that Moses' father-in-law would say, Oh, I just think you're wonderful. If only we had more people who were as dedicated as you were, be thrilling. But that's not the word of the Lord at all. Look what he says in verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. It's not good. And specifically, verse 18, it's not good for you and it's not good for them, though you think it might be. Verse 18. Thou wilt surely wear away. Both thou and this people that is with thee. For the thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. And what he's saying is, it isn't good on a number of, uh, of texts. First of all, Moses, if you're not careful, you're going to have complete nervous exhaustion. Right? You'll have to go on yeast fight to keep you awake. <laughs> and it's going to be useless because you will finally mentally collapse. No man can be under that type of strain. So it's bad for you. But it's also bad for the people in a number of ways. One, because, of course, you're at such a fag end that you say, oh, no, not someone else. And all you're thinking is, I must get through this list. Rather, I imagine, how a doctor gets towards the end of the surgery. Oh, boy, you know, well, how much? Three minutes each, and I should be finished on time. And finally, you're so exhausted, you don't have the freshness to get to God, to really seek God for these people. The other thing which is very damaging is if the people rely too heavily upon you, Moses, 
when you go the way of all flesh, because we all die eventually, right? Some of us hang on quite a long time, but we all die eventually. When you die and when you go, the people are going to collapse because they've got so used to coming to you that they haven't learnt in any way how to minister themselves. So it is wrong, this man says, on every count, it is wrong. I have to go minister in some uh, churches and afterwards I make an appeal for people who need ministry. And I'll tell you this, I can always tell the places that have concentrated on body ministry. The places that have concentrated on body ministry, there are only a few people come out. And it's normally for very hard things indeed. The ones who haven't concentrated on body ministry, but on one man ministry, loads of them come out. Now, I remember in one church I ministered and 70 people came out for ministry afterwards. I finished talking at quarter past ten. And I had 70 people. And I sat with the first couple and it was something so trivial I couldn't believe they hadn't dealt with it themselves. But they would got used to going to someone all the time. And it's not good for anyone. And I also learnt this quite early on. It was such a relief when we appointed elders in the fellowship and then there were other people, you know, to, to whom people could go to check things over. What a wonderful thing this priesthood of the believer is that we stick so firmly to. It means if someone has a problem or they need the word of the Lord, they can go to any available minister that the Lord leads them to. They don't have to go to me or to one of the elders or even to one of the leaders. They can go to whoever the Lord points them to and with my blessing in most cases. And I'll be dealing with certain ministries, of course, specific ministries, when we come on to other ministries in the body of Christ. And so Jethro gives him the word of the Lord. And he goes on, he says, verse 19, Hearken now unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. Look, Moses, if you're so busy with these people, what time do you get for prayer? You can't pray. You're too busy giving them advice with your lips. Get down to prayer on behalf of the people. And then he says, verse 20, the second part of his ministry, and thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. So pray for them and give them teaching. There's the double push of your ministry, Moses. And isn't it interesting that in Acts 6, this is exactly the push of the early church leaders. We will devote ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's actually what they said. Then Jethro comes up with the situation to solve their problem. And here it is. It's not exactly our problem, but it was a very good scheme. Verse 21. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons. And it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. If thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all these people shall go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens, and they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought unto Moses, 
but every small matter they judged themselves. And so immediately you have an order of authority given in this particular passage. And by the way, this didn't last for long. This was soon replaced by another system when they needed it. But for the moment and for their particular problems then, it served very well. This is the structure of authority. They had God. They had the law. Then they had Moses. And under Moses, they then had these various rulers. And they had vast numbers to cope with, and so they needed some to be over 10, some over 50, some over 100, and so it went on. All right, so there's the order that was given for them. Now, their problem was one of authority, one of ministry. You'll notice in fellowships today who believe in body ministry, that is, that every person who's born again is a priest, ministry isn't so much the problem. Not so much the problem. Because you can go and share your burden with many people, several people, and they will receive the word of the Lord for you. Our problem is one of pastoral care. And that's the big problem confronting fellowships like ourselves today. Pastoral care. For today, when you get people saved, they don't automatically belong to a group, a family group that is. They don't automatically belong to a clan in the local area. And so we have people scattered in a large area who have to be looked after on a pastoral level. And this is why God led the elders of this fellowship to direct that there should be what we call local area groups. And I spoke upon those some weeks ago, and the tape is available. Local area groups of no more than, say, 15, 20 people in each group, although it varies from group to group, so that in our fellowships, no matter how large they get, there's always a group of people that you can identify with, that you can feel close with, and these are geographically near you, normally within walking distance, although not always within walking distance. And this is the design that the Lord revealed to the elders here. Now, it's taken some time to work, and in certain areas it's still having to be worked through. But then the Lord led us on and said that there were to be two what we called leaders over each area group. And these leaders were to deal with our particular problem, which was a problem the early church didn't have. And we were led of the Lord to make geographical groups in the fellowship and over each group to appoint two leaders, although in some there are three and some there are one but we're heading on for two in each particular group. And these leaders here, as we appointed them, were largely to do pastoral work, and I'll define what I mean in just a moment. So that in our fellowship, the order is not God, law, Moses, rulers. The order is God, the Word. Remember that in eldership I've talked about the elders being under the Word of God. Then you get elders... And then below the elders, you actually have leaders in the fellowship. The leaders here have delegated authority. They do not have the same authority that the elders have. Their authority comes from the elders directly. They, are, they have delegated authority, and they are answerable to the elders in their particular group. But may I say this and make it quite clear, leaders definitely are 
what I might call elders in embryo. They certainly are learning all of the things that go with eldership. And may I say, therefore, to all who are leaders and people who want leadership, the qualities you need to look for in your own life are the qualities that every elder must look for in his life. We dealt with them in some detail in 1 Timothy 3, but can we read the list in Titus? All right, let's go to Titus chapter 1. It's so interesting that Paul, in case you missed Timothy, actually repeats the list in Titus. Titus, just after 2 Timothy, of course. Titus chapter 1. Titus in chapter 1. And these are the things, as leaders, you should be asking God to reveal in your own life. Certainly elders must have these things. Indeed, I, you know my dream, don't you, that every member of our fellowship might act and hold themselves before God as an elder would and as a leader would. So I would say it would be wonderful for everyone in a fellowship to develop these qualities. Look what it says, verse 4, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I appointed thee. And 1 uh, Timothy 3.1 says, any man who desires to be a bishop, he desires a good thing. And if you desire leadership, you desire a good thing. If you desire eldership, you desire an excellent thing. And then it says, verse 6, if any be blameless, and that is almost an exact repeat from 1 Timothy 3. In other words, no one can point the finger at him as far as any moral defect is concerned. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, not polygamous, I don't know anyone in our fellowship who is polygamist, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, that is up to the age, of course, of accountability. In other words, the children under his direct charge must be seen to be under his direct charge. Verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. For if a bishop goes wrong, everyone blames God for his wrongdoing. That's why it's so awful to read in the Sunday newspapers when a born-again man suddenly is exposed in a particular type of way because it's always God that loses glory through it as far as the people are concerned. So he must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed. And that carries the meaning of quarrelsome, all the time picking arguments, and all the time causing a fray over everything. Not soon angry. Patient is the word, the positive word. Not soon angry, very patient. Not given to wine. Do you remember I said that in the House of Lords, the only seat in the House of Lords with arms on was the bishop's seat? And it was to stop them in their drunken state from falling off the chair. And it was terrible, you see. But this is in direct contradiction with the Word of God. And you can go there to the House of Lords today and you can actually see it. None of the chairs have arms except for the bishop's seats. You know, and they used to come in absolutely rolling drunk and fall off the side. And the, the arms there. And every person that goes around the House of Lords, it's pointed out to them. It's, of course Satan would attack because Titus clearly says you mustn't stay long at the drinking table. That's exactly what it says. Not given to wine, no striker, which means you don't hit people, 
not given to filthy lucre. Filthy lucre are material blessings. That doesn't mean to say you won't be blessed with material blessings, but they mustn't be important to you. So that, in fact, you don't go out deliberately doing things just for the material blessing, because God might take them all away one day. But a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, that is not secretly liking the bad man. Sober, which means wisely cautious, nothing to do with drink there. Just, which means he likes to see justice done in every way. Holy, so that he loves God's law. Temperate means self-controlled, so that everyone might say, there is a self-controlled man. I never see him, you know, going over the top in any particular area. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. And so in leadership, I would say, because it is directly from eldership, these are the qualities that leaders ought to be looking for in their own lives and seeking God to produce these things in them. All right, as far as our own fellowships are concerned, it's a pastoral ministry very largely. And the reason for that is quite obvious. If you take our own fellowship, for example, we have really only one full-time elder for the pastoral needs of our fellowship. Now, the other elders are all working people. Some of the elders here do a very hard and full-time day's work, right? Some of the elders get up quarter past six in the morning and get in from work, say, half past six or seven o'clock at night. They then have families as well. Now, obviously, if you've got the problem that we face, this very large group of people and geographically spread, do you see it's obvious that people like that with full-time jobs and with families can't possibly get round to see everyone and know everyone and know what's going on in everyone's life, you know, and where their, the needs are and things like that. Obviously, it's impossible. And this is why leaders have primarily been appointed. And the leaders are in geographical areas. And the idea behind this that the law presented us with, and it, this was after much prayer, but it came as an absolute flash from the Lord. It was, it was a wonderful time when we saw it as clear as a bell and wondered why we'd never seen it before. It was amazing. It didn't come through reading books or anything. It was a revelation from the Lord. And it was this. By having a local geographical area with two leaders in it, we actually could keep in contact with everyone who was in the fellowship. And we try and make it so that there are a sufficiently small number in each group for the two leaders to actually keep in constant contact with. And the leaders ought to spend time during the week either ringing or popping in to see the people in their own area so that they get to know them really very well indeed. These are not just the people who go to the local area meetings, whether they're held on a Monday or a Thursday or a Friday, but these are any people associated with the fellowship who live in that geographical area. And therefore, the leaders ought to make sure it is their job to contact these people. And they are really the ears and the eyes of the eldership. Now, I try my best to get to know everyone in the fellowship, and I'm beginning to find the edges are a bit frayed, as far as, not in my own life, but I mean, the edges of the fellowship. There are people who I know by name, but really am not quite sure anymore of their exact circumstances. But a leader who has a much more limited and, and very definite group of people to actually look after, the job is much simpler as far as he is concerned. It means that if anyone is in particular trouble, 
they can contact their leader, or their, contact, their, their leader may find out about their problem in his, say, weekly contact with them. And if they can help from within the local area group, that's fine. But otherwise, the leader must either try and find help from someone around in the fellowship, or contact our full-time elder, or contact the elders as a whole, or contact the deacons, or contact whoever he feels is the right person for this particular situation. Therefore, through the institution of leaders, we have a system whereby we can provide pastoral care for everyone. The fellowship was growing at such a rate of knots, and the elders were running around chasing their tails so fast, that in fact we found the time came when there were people completely being missed in the fellowship. And there were people we knew nothing about their circumstances or what was going on. And it was really wrong. And some fellowships I visit, the people have a raw look about them because no one really cares. No one is interested in their particular uh, situation. Well, the position of leaders enables us to keep a cohesive family group in each of these geographical areas. And the idea also is that there should be a general linkage together in these areas, that the people feel they belong to one another within these particular groups. And as the fellowship grows, then, of course, these groups will be changed. We try and keep the numbers down, but it is difficult when you get constant addition and then people saved as well. And sometimes you do find that the numbers have grown so much what do you do? You can't contact anyone. At that point, you must pray there's enough mature people for this thing to split in half, and you form two groups. And I think in the last few months, we are, have begun to see the final pattern coming out as far as the fellowship is concerned. Certainly in Bogner, I think the final pattern is more or less there. But there will be split in these groups. But I've dealt with this largely in the local area groups. But I would say primarily, though there are other things as well attached to this position of leadership, it is a pastoral caring position because it is the pastoral need that the fellowship really has. As far as the meetings are concerned, and of course most of these groups have a meeting once a week, they are also leaders in those meetings. And these leaders must share the aims of the elders and must have the same vision that the elders actually have. And they are to lead those meetings. And I dealt with the type of meetings you should be having in your local area on the tape called local area groups. And it's up to these leaders to start putting the, um, the things that I taught on that particular tape into operation in your local area. One of the hardest things for leaders is this, to actually learn how to balance the different personalities that are within any particular group. You know, most of us think that if all Christians were like me, then we'd have no problems. Can't understand why they're not like me. Can't understand why their response to God isn't like my response to God. And very often, it's not true. God loves individualistic children. He loves it. And he's given us all a different character, right? And he's producing a Jesus within each one of us. But we are basically different. One of the arts of leadership and one of the arts of eldership is, first of all, learning to get on with all types. I get on very well with most types in the fellowship. I like them all, I think. And, <laughs> but, but there's a stretching. It certainly wasn't true at a certain point. But I find I get on well with, with most people around when I'm invited out or when I pop in to see people. I quite enjoy myself, whoever I've popped in to see. Whether they enjoy me or is another question altogether. But, in fact... Leadership, I think part of the stretching in leadership is this, uh, to ask God to give you the ability to get on with those people 
within your own group. And then in the meetings themselves, to try and balance these different personalities. You've got some who are naturally extrovert, some who are naturally introvert. And the extroverts can't understand why these wretched introverts aren't moving on with God faster. And these introverts can't understand why God hasn't shut them up a long time ago. <laughs> and so you get the two different types. And the key is to try and balance so that no one group dominates as far as the meetings are concerned and bashes up the other side. That's no use. And unfortunately, this means that the leaders have to develop tremendous strength of character and the ability to bring the anointed word and not just to let the thing carry on. You know, uh, you have to actually intervene in, in the particular meeting should there be problems. Well, the only thing you can do is what the elders have to do constantly anyway. That is get on your knees and really seek God about it. God has to give you the art of leadership. And it's a skill that you have to acquire from the Lord. It is a spiritual gift received from the Lord. And so all the leaders, first of all you'll understand that eldership isn't quite as easy as you thought it was. And then you have to seek God and you'll find it's challenging, it really is stretching, but it brings you into a very broad place in your own heart. And it's not just the people in the groups who should be developing, it's the leaders also who will be developing. In this way therefore, the elders are able, first of all, to live their normal lives and then they're able to get on with really the essential things as well as ministry in particular cases, but praying and the ministry of the Word of God, which is so essential if any fellowship is to advance and to develop. And so you see, this is where we get, as far as our, our fellowship is concerned, the whole position of leaders. Could I say, and I because we're having a leadership training course in January, I don't really want to go into the details that I'll be dealing with at that time. But can I just say this, that please, if you're a member of this fellowship, don't wait until you have the official appointment of elder or leader. Start acting maturely now. Start asking God to develop these qualities in you now and start praying for the group that you're involved with now so that you don't just put your feet up and say, oh, it's up to the leaders. I'm just uh, letting them get on with it. That's not the point at all. And it is important that every one of us realises our responsibilities so that we individually seek unto the Lord. From January on, the elders will be meeting with the leaders that they have responsibility uh, to once every two weeks. And there will be a set evening once a fortnight and the leaders will gather with the elder who has responsibility over that group not just to discuss the problems that may have come up but to pray for the group generally so that in, in fact if the elder knows of any people who are in need that can be shared and vice versa. But it really is to pray with the, the elder or the elders generally about the group that you have responsibility in. So that will be beginning in... January next year, all right? And there'll be a regular meeting once a fortnight. All right, having covered then the basic role of leadership, what I want to do now, just to complete the time that we have, which is quite short tonight, I want to talk a little about this position uh, of single women in the fellowship and specifically to deal with the whole concept that is called covering. Now, I don't know whether you know this, but a few years ago, every magazine you picked up had an article on covering. 
And what it really meant was this, that if in any fellowship there was a single woman who was in single status for some reason or other, she was to be covered. And the big uh, passage that was quoted was, of course, 1 Corinthians 11, where a woman must have authority on her head. And that's the only verse that was quoted. But uh, then they then went on to say, and it's so essential for, pe- for women, not men, but women, to make sure that if they are in single status, they are to have a man that they submit everything to. And that was the teaching that came out of America and caught on in many, many parts of this country. And may I say, for a little time, we as a fellowship, I think, got very dangerously close to going into error over the whole teaching. It uh, disturbed me very greatly. And so, in certain magazines, you had uh, people write, it was normally testimonies of it. I used to be uncovered, and uh, it was really <laughs> difficult, and so on, and so on, and so on. But then, all of a sudden, I, the Lord led me to have a covering, and now he arranges my financial things. I give only what he thinks I should give. I buy that which he thinks I ought to buy. I get the job that he thinks that I should handle. And finally, it went into a sort of slavery in which the woman didn't do anything, but she always asked her covering, who told her what she was to do in every single situation. And behind it, I, well, I kept looking for Bible quotations and I couldn't find many. And behind it, I afraid I detected plain, ordinary male chauvinism. The type of uh, image given of women by the teaching that came out of America was not the teaching found in the Bible. You know I've done a tape dealing with 1 Corinthians 11 called Should Women Wear Hats in Church? And on that particular tape you'll find it's very pro-feminist because the Bible is very pro-feminist. Very, very supportive of women and their ministries. Often asked, oh, can a woman be a priest? The answer in the Bible is definitely they are. Anyone who's born again, whether male or female, is automatically a priest. Whether they can be an elder, I cover on the tape. That's another issue. But generally, the Bible is very pro-females indeed. And often, I saw the picture given of women as quivering, useless, (laughs) jelly-like creatures who really were so incapable that they had to check everything with their particular covering. And I found that many people actually treated their wives like that as well, so that their wife couldn't do anything unless their husband absolutely agreed in everything. May I say, if you're a single woman, or if you're a single man... Or if you're a married woman, you must, of course, make sure that your behavior fits in with the general household. And Numbers 30 actually says that if a woman takes a vow and her father says no, it is to be cancelled. And if a woman takes a vow and her husband says no, it is to be cancelled. But that's the type of thing where a woman promised that she would devote herself to the law for ten years. And there was the husband with the ten children. He had to go out to work and earn a living. Now, it's obvious in that situation, you can't just do your own thing. None of us can do our own thing. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean we go into ridiculous teaching over the role of women. I do not find that type of wife found in the Bible. I think I quoted Proverbs 31 quite clearly in the Bible. If you read Proverbs 31 sometime, you'll see what a real wife is. She has her own money. Amazing, right? Her husband gives her that money and that's the money she's got and she can spend it as she pleases. She looks at a field and if she thinks the field's good, she goes and buys it. 
I'd love my wife to buy a Fiat sometime. <laughs> really would. Most, most unlikely, she doesn't have any money of that sort of nature. But nevertheless, it's a wonderful thing for a woman to be like that. I trust my wife with money, absolutely. And it thrills me so much when my wife has managed to save some money from the housekeeping and I see her put it in envelopes and it goes in certain of the funds in the fellowship here. And it might only be 50p piece or a pound note or something like that and in it goes and she's managed to get a cheap line or something like this and she saved the money, put it aside and it goes into the prayer for Israel box, into the tape box, into the general fund, whatever it is. Never into my ministry, should I tell you. <laughs> But there it should, and, and I don't ask her and say, what do you spend the housekeeping on that for? Obviously, I'm giving you too much housekeeping. <laughs> you don't hear me doing that because I trust my wife. And there is a partnership, and there should be a partnership in marriage between a husband and a wife. Similarly, should the husband find that through various reasons... Uh, the house, he can't quite afford the housekeeping. There ought to be a partnership there for the wife to say, well, come on, darling, let's really knuckle under and let's see what we can do as far as this situation is concerned. But there ought to be a partnership developed. Certainly you don't find in the Bible this quivering little woman who can't do anything. Darling, could I turn the tap on? <laughs> you don't find that anywhere. And therefore, you see, what we've got to do is get the right balance, even as far as this word covering is concerned. Now, there is some teaching on so-called covering, but you know, I've never, in all the books I've read, and magazine articles I've read on covering, I've never found one yet that actually deals with the obvious teaching on covering. Because the obvious teaching on covering concerns one little word in Hebrew. It's got four letters to it and is a very unknown word to ordinary Bible-believing Christians. And it's such an important word, I'm amazed people have never heard of it. It's the word goel. G-O-E-L. And goel is the nearest you get to covering in the Bible. Now, you may not have heard of the Hebrew word, but there, you will have heard of the translations of this word. It's sometimes translated as kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. Sometimes it's translated as revenger. And sometimes as avenger of blood. And the Goel concept is a very important one. Basically, it was this, that should a woman, or a man for that matter, in the Old Testament, but it was specifically women, because men generally could get jobs to look after themselves. But if a woman found that she was in dire straits, her husband may have died, they may have been robbed or pillaged or something like this, and she really had no one to turn to, there was always a member of her family called the Goel, a close member of her family, to whom she could turn in emergency. Now, she didn't turn for everything to this man, but whenever she had a real emergency, she had someone she could turn to. And that is the Goel concept. Now, the big example, and I won't turn to the book because you can read it for yourself, is in the book of Ruth, where you have Naomi and Ruth and they are absolutely without any form of sustenance. In those days, very often, the women had to turn to prostitution. Or they were murdered in the streets. That was the only 
thing that would happen to them. And here they went back to Naomi's homeland and they were in a desperate state. And it's there that Naomi mentions the kinsman redeemer. And she says, go to Boaz, he's our Goel. In other words, if we're in real dire straits, we can turn to this chap. And you know the story, Boaz provides very wonderfully for uh, Naomi and for Ruth specifically. So there is someone that they can turn to. But may I remind you, please, that every one of us is going to give an account of our stewardship before the Lord. Now, if the extreme form of covering teaching is correct, obviously the ladies, the single ladies, will never give an account before God. As soon as they get to the pearly gates, whoever's on the pearly gates will say, oh yes, you're covered, aren't you? Oh yes, you pass in. And then when their covering arrives, oh yes. I've got a word to have with you. Now, shall we start with your life or shall we start with the 50 women you were covering? <laughs> and apparently this man will have to give an account for all the ladies that he's covered because the qu- poor quivering jellies couldn't do anything. <laughs> oh, I'm so useless, I just can't do anything. I, I, I'm always on the phone, you know. Can I go out now? Uh, can I move? Is this right? And so you get this ridiculous form of teaching developed. Every one of us will give an account. And that, my, my dear sisters means you will give an account of your own stewardship as well. And that means if you will give an account, you are considered by God to have the wit and to have the status to actually run your own life. Now run it in the same way men do. In other words, before God and exposed to the word of God. That's it. But if you are in need, every one of you should have a goel to turn to. And I don't just mean single women, I mean single men, and I don't just mean single men and women, I mean married couples also. For in the Bible, the goel covered anyone who was in the family who was disadvantaged. That's the important thing. It just so happened that women found themselves disadvantaged more often than men. So they would call upon their goels more often. All right, let me show you a case where it was a man who called upon a goel. And let's actually go uh, to Deuteronomy and chapter 19. This is very quickly done. I just want to complete this tape with it. Deuteronomy and chapter 19. And let's read from verse 11. Deuteronomy 19, verse 11. And here you've got murder being committed, and the man is the one who is disadvantaged. Now this is a very key passage. But if any man hate his neighbor, and lie in wait for him, and rise up against him, and smite him mortally that he die, and fleeth into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and fetch him hence. Before we read on, can I just explain? There were certain cities, right, which were cities in which if you killed someone accidentally, you could run and be safe. They were called cities of refuge. And if it was a real accident, you were just chopping down the branch of a tree and suddenly the axe head fell off and it came off and hit someone on the head and then they died. You were innocent. It wasn't premeditated murder. It wasn't first degree murder. And what you could do, you could run to one of these cities and you could live there and you'd be safe. This was a a wonderful scheme. 
right? It really was a, a good scheme. But here, a man deliberately hates his neighbor, and he has premeditated this murder. And what he does, he commits a murder, and then he runs to one of the cities of refuge. Now, what happens? Well, the elders of his city, who are the people who have responsibility, they will send and fetch him thence. And they go into the city, they drag him out. And look, and they deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. And the word avenger of blood is Goel there. And here's a man who dies, and his wife turns to the near kinsman and says, excuse me, my husband was murdered, who is going to fight for him? And the Goel says, I will fight for him, which means I will get justice for that particular, for my, your husband. And he drops what he's doing, and he runs, and he goes to the elders of the city, and says, excuse me, but this woman has come to me, I'm Goel to her. Her husband has been murdered. This man is hiding in that city. I demand you do something about it. And off the elders will go. And notice who's done it. The Goel has done it. So the Goel gets justice for this man so that his death is avenged. All right, verse 13. Thine eye shall not pity him, but thou shalt put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with thee. And that's capital punishment, of course. And I've dealt with that on the tapes on capital punishment. But do you see the principle of Goel here? If ever a person is in need and they don't know where to turn, they should have someone that they can go to. If ever a person suffers injustice and they cannot fight for themselves, they should have someone that they can go to. This may be an elder, this might be a leader, but it needn't be. It can be anyone in the fellowship. And I would say especially the men who I think have the temperament to deal with this type of thing. And sometimes in our own fellowship we find, find that uh, people are in a disadvantaged state and they can't deal with it. Then call upon someone to actually help you in that situation. But notice this. The covering given is first of all voluntary. That's very important. In other words, once you appoint this Goel, he doesn't then have a right to come into every detail of your life. Right? Very, very important, that is. Today, you sometimes find that a person asks someone to cover them in a particular situation, and the chap demands to have total authority over the whole of their life. That's absolutely anti-biblical. Absolutely wrong. And don't you submit to any person in that type of way. It's voluntary. In other words, you can call this person in to help you in this situation. By the way, he may say, excuse me, but this is your fault. And if you've called him in, you've got to listen to him at that point. So be very careful who you choose. Because he can't be just a chap you use and then discard. If you ask him to come in to help you with your finances, he might say, you're jolly extravagant, and it's going to take us eight years to get this sorted out. And I'm afraid you've got him for eight years as far as your finance is concerned. However, he doesn't have any right to deal with any other area of your life unless you invite him in. So it's voluntary. And the second point is, it is not all-inclusive. That is, it doesn't automatically cover every area of your life. I would say if you're living with a family, it's a good thing, whether you're male or female, to turn to them if you get on with them and if you feel it's right. That is the most obvious thing, because they're in situ, as it were. But you ask God who will be your Goel and who will fight for you as far as 
these things are concerned. And by the way, this man may actually say, this is a matter for the elders, and we're going to call the elders into this situation. But you make sure that there is someone you can turn to. You might never have to use him, but it's lovely to know that such a person is there. Now, that is the extent of teaching on covering. And when you read books on covering and when you read articles on covering, you see how much of them is testimony and how lacking in plain teaching from the Word of God they really are. Every one of us has a right to a goel. The ultimate goel, as far as a fellowship is concerned, is the eldership itself. All right, with that dealt with, and I hope clarified, and I hope it's released some of you ladies from any fear or bondage that you may be in, that has cleared the way for us next time to go on to the subject of deacons. And then the time after that will be on other ministries. Let's just pray, shall we? <clears throat> Father, I do thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord. Father, I do ask, Lord, that we should have a fellowship who is cared for. Father, that's the real burden on my own heart. Oh, Father, I just don't want anyone in our fellowship to be, feel as if they're neglected and not looked after. Father, you know, Lord, the eight elders are so busy. Father, you know the, the stress and the strains that are upon them. Father, you know the ministries that they have individually. Father, I would ask in Jesus' name that you will anoint and raise up men and women in our fellowship. Father, who may be able, filled with the Holy Ghost, Father, I pray that every person in this fellowship may be concerned with the life of his brother and sister, not in a dominating or domineering way, but in a pastorally concerned way. Father, that we should learn to look after one another. Oh, Father, there'd be no need of leadership at all if we were all devoted with Jesus in our hearts. And Father, I know, Lord, I speak for the elders when I say that we long for the day when we as elders will never have to make any announcements as far as the fellowship is concerned for all of us will be acting as elders and with that maturity father therefore please anoint the leaders that we have father we thank you that we've got so many others who could easily be appointed leaders father we thank you you have leaders that we haven't appointed in this place father i just pray in jesus name that father none of us should seek for a title or a position but father that we should actively move forward in all that is required of leaders and elders. Father, I just thank you so much for the unity among the elders. Father, it's such a precious thing in these days. But Father, we want to see our fellowship grow and be noted for its love in the midst. Will you help us, Lord? Father, how much we need your guidance in these days. You know, Father, we are in a very critical time in the life of this fellowship. And we are just looking, Lord, for people who should be 100% concerned with your work here. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that indeed you will answer my prayer, that, Father, you will see us through, and that, Father, we should come through glorious in every way. Father, for those who are new in the fellowship, Father, I just pray, Lord, that if there are any loopholes, Father, if there are any who are neglected, Father, we just confess it to you and we repent of it. But, Father, just give them patience to help us get it right, Lord. Father, that you should have here a team of people ready for the expansion that is to come, ready for the new converts to come in, ready for all the work that you have ahead. Father, we thank you you're going to bring people with every type of, of problem and every type of need, and they're going to be met in this place. Father, we just thank you for that.
Father, we thank you. We have much training to do of us. But Father, we are bowing the knee to your training. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that we should be a haven for many. Father, especially for those who are battered by wrong doctrine, battered by ambitious men. Father, in these ambitious, heady days, Father, there are so many victims. And I pray, Father, that they might know there is a beacon here. There is a light of freedom shining in this place. Father, we don't just want to shine. We want to have the goods to give them when they come. Father, at the moment we deal with some. There are many that we cannot deal with. But, Father, will you expand this? Father, I mentioned the problem of schizophrenia earlier. Will you give us the answer, Lord? We seek your face actively for it. Father, in Jesus' name. Oh, Father, and just show us, Father, the right outside ministers to have. Father, for the expansion of our total ministry. Father, we thank you already, as I've prayed this in the last few weeks, you've opened up certain names that I've never heard of before. And Father, I think it could be right. Father, just guide. Father, challenge our hearts as we come to the new year, which is such an important time in the life of our fellowship. And Father, may we press on together. All those who are not here, Lord, I just ask that you would bless them, Father, by the Holy Spirit. Father, in Jesus' name, you know why they have been unable to come. We just ask you to pour your blessing out, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.